Life Audio. Hello and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. And I am Tamara. And we are here to help you tackle ancient truths in everyday settings. So there are a lot of topics that make people uncomfortable. And today we are going to talk about one of them. I thought that's what we do every week. Um, That's what I'm trying to do every week. Yeah. You're just far more confrontational than I am. But um, no, we are not going to talk about sex. I think people instantly think that. But we are going to talk about something that might be a little bit more uncomfortable than the topic of sex. Uh, today, we're going to talk about money. Money. Money, 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 money. So, recently, a study was conducted by Barna. Uh, not Barnabas. I always get the research platform incorrect. So, recently, a study was conducted by Barna, and it found that only 33% of pastors surveyed in the U.S. believe that tithing is a biblical mandate. And tithing is um, the instruction that you're supposed to give 10% of your income, right? Yeah, give it directly to the local church. Yes. Uh, 70% of those said that tithing is not limited to financial giving, and 21% said they do not support a recommended amount of someone's income be given to the local church. So basically only one out of every three pastors says that tithing is in the Bible as a mandate for modern day Christians to give to the local church that 10%. Right. And alongside the pastors that were surveyed, there were also just like your common church tenders, laymen surveyed as well. Hoi polloi. Hoi, what? The people. Okay. I don't know what you just said. Uh, so the the reports of, of these surveys were just as shocking. Only two out of five adults surveyed were even familiar with the term tithe. So they were asked, do you support tithe? Do you agree with it? And they didn't even know what that word meant at all. And this is just people or this is Christians? Um, no, this is Christians. Oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. So two out of five Christians Did not didn't know. even know the word tithe. Interesting. Yes. 21% of these people surveyed said they do give 10% of their income to the local church. What percentage of those were lying? Well, that's true. Because that's, <laughs> I know, I was like, 10%, that feels high. 10%, no, 21% said they give 10%. 25% said they do not give any amount to the local church. So 25% of the people are honest. Well, at least they're honest, yeah. Right. So today... What we're going to talk about is whether or not the Bible actually calls us to give a tithe and offering to the local church. Are we in the 33% or are we in the 67%? You'll have to find out. You'll find out. (laughs) Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. 
Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Hi, I'm Rebecca Scott. As a servant of God, wife, and mother of four, I understand the juggle of multiple roles and stages. That's why I created the Encourager podcast to help guide us through the messy middle stage of life. Join me on the Encourager as we challenge the chaos and embrace harmony. Together, we'll create practical systems to balance your roles and fulfill priorities. And we will do it while having joy and energy for both home and work life. Tune in for inspiring stories and interviews, actionable tips, and methods to do both home and work life. Because here, we believe you can do all things, just not all at once. All right, so we are talking about tithing and generosity, but it's probably important that we should distinguish those two things from the get, because the Bible really leaves no question as to whether Christians ought to be generous or whether the focus of that generosity should be on furthering the mission of Jesus, the mission of the gospel through the local church. That's a given that that should be a key point of emphasis in the Christian's life, not only to be generous generally, but also to be generous with regard to the mission of Jesus. But the question that we are trying to tackle is, does that mean that the tithe is the standard for that? Does the Bible seem to give us an indication that in order for that to be the case, for your generosity to hit the proper benchmark, then you have to hit that 10% of your income to your specific local church, as has often been taught in evangelical circles. Right. And that 10% is really, if, if the Bible is calling us to that, then there's a lot of questions around that, that I've heard in a very practical way, right? If we are, if it is a biblical mandate to give 10% of your income to your local church, is that 10% gross? Is it net? Um, Should Christians accept the tax deduction at the end of the year that comes with any kind of charitable donations? Like, is that okay when it comes to this mandate or not? Do you have to tithe on your tax return? Right. Or do you get to keep all of that because you already tithed on the gross before? I've actually heard like pastors talk no, about this. Yeah. Like, because if you tithe, wonder. they say if you tithe on your take home, then you need to tithe on your tax return because you didn't tithe on that on that money yet. But if you tithed on your gross then you get to keep all of your tax return because that money comes pre-tithed. Right. Which is really technical, and there's like it, a lot of explaining happening on like how what's the dollar amount that you should be giving. Mm-hmm. Right, like out of that 10%, that benchmark, the number that is set um, according to Scripture, right? Because that's where pastors are calling you is like, this is what the Bible says, so this is what you're supposed to do. Then comes all of these other very practical questions of what exactly does that look like if it's 10%? So uh, obviously, if that is true um, of scripture, 10% tithe being a biblical mandate, then there are a lot of other questions to ask. Right. Like the other question is, does all 10% have to go to your church? Or can it go to you know, five percent you to your church, two percent right. to a missions organization, three percent to whatever other charitable expenditure that you have, or does all ten have to go to your church, and then whatever you do outside of that has got to be above and beyond? That's another question that a lot of people pose to their pastors, and their pastors typically will say, "No, you got to give the you first ten give to it us." To church. Well, of course, right? I right. mean, that makes sense. They're trying to 
do more than keep their lights on, hopefully. But uh, the way that we're going to kind of approach it is what are the biblical origins of tithing? Because if there are people talking about a tithe, then hopefully it has some biblical origins, right? Like hopefully it didn't just like come from nowhere. I mean, the word's in there. Yes. So it's in there. So let's look at the biblical argument for tithing and where it's coming from and where do we see it in scripture. Yeah. So the first place that we see a tithe is in the very first book of the Bible in Genesis 14 verses 18 through 20. This is the first time we even see kind of the concept of a tithe. And this is shortly after Abram returns from a military victory and he become he gotten involved with that because he had to save his nephew Lot. And there's you know a lot of backstory there. Uh, Lot had been taken captive, and Lot seemed to cause a lot of trouble for Abram throughout his life. But he comes back from that, and as Abram returns from battle, uh, there with these considerable spoils, having defeated his enemy, he meets this mysterious dude who's like a priest, but he's a king, and he has a cool name, and his name is Melchizedek. And this is what happens in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. It says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed is Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemy into your hands. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And so what we see is that as Abram comes back, he gets this blessing from this priest king named Melchizedek. And in response to that that divine blessing that is given to him, he says, you know what? I'm going to give you a tenth of all the things that I, I brought back from this military conquest. And that was his the first instance that we see of a tithe. Yeah, and the act of Abram is certainly not enough to understand giving a tenth out of your in- income as a biblical mandate. Like to look at this in isolation and then draw a conclusion that look, this is the mandate. Um, I I think that's very weak. I don't think you could do that at all. Uh, it it just doesn't hold up. But his tithe to a priest of God that he you know met and gave him this blessing is certainly a foreshadowing of the law to come. And so the next time we see any reference or instance of some kind of a tithe happening is in Leviticus 2730, where we see this giving of the law. And um, this is hundreds of years after Abram gives a tenth to the king priest. Um, but God did institutionalize the giving of 10% as a law. Yeah, and just to give another little piece of the biblical context there, while this law given to Moses was you know, hundreds and hundreds of years after this interaction between Abram and Melchizedek, the authorship of Genesis and uh, Leviticus is part of this five-part series called the Pentateuch. And it's so literarily speaking, it's kind of like the same. There's there's arguments about who authored the Pentateuch. Some say it was Moses. That's kind of like the more traditional view. Some say there was, you know, a number of different authors that contributed to it. That's kind of more the, you know, the progressivist kind of idea. But in in either regard, the Pentateuch was constructed as a singular unit. And so when this narrative of Abram was told, it was done so literarily to foreshadow the giving of the law to Israel, of which Abram is the father. Right. And I'm going to read just Leviticus 27.30 so we see what is actually said in the giving of the 10%. 
says every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. So here we see God commanding for the people of Israel to give 10% of their um, income, whether that be uh, their crops or their animals or whatever it is that they do to earn a living. They are commanded to give the Levites 10% of their the fruit of their work, right? Yeah, and the Levites, they were one of the tribes of Israel, and they had this special designation among the the Israelites in that they weren't farmers, they they didn't have livestock. They were the priestly class within the nation of Israel, and so they were the ones who were charged with taking care of the tabernacle and later the temple. And so their whole job was to be there at the mediating place between God and Israel. And so their work was in the temple. And so in order to support that practically financially, uh, the rest of the tribes needed to give 10% of their first fruits of their crops and their livestock and everything to support financially the Levites who were then acting as the mediator for all of the other between God and all of the other tribes of Israel. So that's kind of like the, the practical setup of why this tithing system was put in place to begin with. Well, and not only was that tithing system used to support the like livelihood of the Levites, but some of that went to burnt offerings and other things that Correct, yes. were required to carry out the work of caring for the tabernacle or the temple. Yeah, so there was a large portion of that, which was actually the burnt sacrifice, which yeah. was part of their worship. But then, you know, the remainder of that was vital to the livelihood of the priests and the Levites who were mediating that experience. Yeah, and something that's interesting um which it doesn't necessarily just say it in one verse but as we look back to the old testament what it meant to tithe and what uh laws were actually given when you go through the laws that were given in relation to tithe you actually see it adds up to a whole lot more than just 10 percent. right because there wasn't just one tithe right yeah uh so Different Bible scholars come to different conclusions, but the people of Israel were commanded to give between 12 and 14 separate tithes over the course of a seven-year period. Uh, So this overall, likely, uh, the contribution that they were required to make was more like 20% of their overall income rather than the 10% that we're most familiar with. Right. And then there's this other part of... This tithe, because it seems to make sense, because like right off the bat, you would say, oh, well, that makes sense. Like the priests are talking to God for the people. The people give the 10% so the priest can have a living. We do the same thing. Our churches are a temple. We give to the priest, quote unquote, the pastor, so he can mediate our experience with God. Uh, But that kind of is grafting an ancient context onto a modern context in a way that is less than nuanced and kind of, I think, misses a lot of important things. So in the context of Israel, uh, based on the covenant that the people of Israel had with God, much of their relationship with him was conditional. And so if the people of Israel followed his commandments, then they would receive blessings. And if they didn't, then they wouldn't. They would receive curses instead. And so the tithing commandment worked that way, that God's presence was 
dependent upon the the tithe in some ways, and not just that, but all of the other laws too, but in in a very particular way with the the tithe as well. And we see this in Malachi three verses uh, eight through ten, where the prophet Malachi he's talking to the people of Israel, and he's saying the reason why like things are going so so poorly for you is because you guys are refusing to tithe. And so this is what it says: Will, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have I robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouses, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And if that verse sounds familiar to you, then you may have grown up in a prosperity gospel church mm. or not, but this is the one they use a lot. We want to talk about that in just a moment, like how to fit this Bible verse into that, but we'll do that in just a second. So in Malachi, God says, put me to the test, bring the full tithe and see if I will not rain down blessing from heaven until there is no more need. Everyone and, said amen. And Kenneth Copeland said amen. <laughs> now, this verse is taken out of context a by lot. a lot of prosperity preachers, Kenneth Copeland, Benny Hinn, uh, whatever f- fancy-suited man that shows up on your TV. I was going to say, a lot of televangelists, I yeah. think, like to use this, and they're very passionate about, if you would just give to God what he is requiring of you, then... Um, not only is that just obeying the command, but now he's going to pour out blessing onto your life. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely taking this verse um, out of context and running with it in just a really abusive way. Right, because they would even say like, oh, if you give $100, you're going to receive it back tenfold at some point. You're going to be healthy and wealthy and prosperous if you do this. And and this is like a really transactional thing. Um, And that's just not, the case um just based on the the practicality of it that doesn't happen and then two based on the scripture of it they're really abusing the scripture this verse was based on a very particular uh conditional aspect of the covenant that god had with israel and so we can't really map that one to one because the people who belong to jesus we likewise have a covenant with god but that covenant is unconditional and it doesn't include this conditional part of obedience blessing kind of kind of a thing um but that's that's kind of a a different part of the conversation um what we want to do now is look to the new testament and see what does the new testament have to say so like we know that jesus came to fulfill the law that he did that he died he rose again and then he uh the church starts grafting in not only jewish believers but gentile believers and there's this conversation about like how how do how jewish is the church in in its customs like how many of those things were spiritual things how many of those were cultural things how many of those things have been fulfilled and aren't needed anymore um and we don't get a, a lot from Jesus on this, but there is actually one place where he mentions tithing specifically. It is, and it's not in a a, a good way. <laughs> and it's actually kind of in like, a roundabout way that makes us like, it's not super helpful whether he's like making a pronouncement for us or not. 
Right. So he's actually talking to the scribes and the Pharisees. And we see this in um, Matthew's account and in Luke's account. But those are the only two gospels that we see Jesus talking about this in. Um, So I'll just read it here. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So he makes mention of the tithe, but it's not this direct command. He's actually talking to them about you. You do all these things and you're upholding the law by, you know, giving your commanded 10%. But you don't do the things that are actually even weightier in the kingdom of God. You're not carrying out justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Um, so again, Jesus is not directly talking really about the tithe. He's basically yelling at the Pharisees and scribes for neglecting justice and mercy to the people around them. Right, but he is in in so doing, he is affirming the the Jewish custom of the tithes. Because he's not rebuking them for doing that. He says, that was good, but like, but like that's, not, that's well. not good enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some would look at that and say, see, Jesus affirmed the tithe. Therefore, it's a New Testament commandment. But it's a little bit more complex than that because there were many Mosaic laws that Jesus would have affirmed in his ministry. Like Jesus was probably circumcised. Well, definitely circumcised. He... Uh, <laughs> Uh, he would have followed the Jewish dietary laws. Um, he would have tithed because this was part of the Mosaic law that he came to fulfill. But then after his death and resurrection, uh, things like circumcision were no longer requirements in in the church uh, to be a part of the community of faith. The dietary restrictions were no longer a requirement to be a part of the community of faith. And the tithe isn't something that's mentioned in terms of uh, being a point of dispute. Um, but as we look to the rest of the New Testament, there's no affirmative commandment that that's still in effect. And there isn't really even the implication of it um, because there would have to be a lot of theology in how you transfer a tithe to the temple in Jerusalem to a tithe to your local church right? on a regular basis. Like these weren't 501c3 organizations. And the theological mechanism to, to get you from tithing to the temple to tithing to the church is not in any place in the New Testament teased out, explained, and if that was, you know, as big a factor as, you know, we've been made to believe it is in our modern 501c3 churches, then you would think that there would be, Paul would say something about it, or Peter would say something about it at some point in the epistles, but we never really get that positive uh, affirmation or that, that theological backing for it. That's true, and it, within the early church, there was a, a lot of wrestling, like you uh, mentioned earlier, of what is it within the new church under the new covenant after the death and resurrection of Christ are we meant to uphold? And those who come out of the Jewish background were trying to navigate the Mosaic laws, but we know that Jesus fulfilled those laws. Like we are no longer bound and um, the requirement is now different. Of course, I mean, you even just look at like 
the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus is affirming a lot of what was in the Mosaic laws, but it's no longer this like obligation to the people of God that you have to uh, fulfill these things in order to be um, children of God. So that same thought process goes into the tithes and offerings. When you look at Acts specifically, like the, the birth of the church, we see a lot of giving happening in, in the book of Acts. Um, but it is far more than 10%. And it's there's everything. actually a lot of diversity in terms of the nature and kind of giving that takes place. Because when you look at the Old Testament, it's pretty simple. You give it to the priesthood. But then when you look at the church, who is the priesthood? It's not pastors. That's not the one-to-one. Right. That there's this theology, particularly within uh, Protestantism, evangelicalism, that is found finds its roots in Scripture. It's called the priesthood of all believers, or the priesthood of the saints, which means that because um, the temple of the Holy Spirit is no longer the temple in Jerusalem, the temple of the Holy Spirit is itself the body of believers that we the Holy Spirit lives in and among us, and so we are the priests of God. So then, like, how do we give ten percent to ourselves or you know, like there's there's not this services rendered kind of thing going on with like the the presence of God being mediated through this particular set of people uh, uh, with this particular tithe. Um, but that doesn't mean that the generosity or the the mutual um, caring for one another goes away. In Acts two, where there was a lot of poorer uh, Christians who were in Jerusalem, maybe. Uh, a lot of them had converted at Pentecost when there was, you know, literally thousands of people that converted in a day and they had stayed there to receive training and discipleship before they went back to plant churches in their own hometowns. Uh, And so there's just a lot of need going on. And so basically what people started doing is they started, you know, if they had a property, they would sell it and they would just give all those proceeds, not 10% of those proceeds, all All of those proceeds so that people could have food. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was much more than 10%, obviously, and then we see throughout the uh, the Pauline epistles, Paul's letters, that he is taking up this collection for um, these needs of these uh, Jerusalem Christians. And whenever he kind of puts that in a letter, it's in a couple of different letters, he's never saying, like, you should give 10% or this should be above and beyond the 10% that you give to your local church to give to this Jerusalem uh, offering Um, There's never that specificity to it. Yeah. And so the theme that you really see in the New Testament is not so much the law of this 10%, right? And growing up in the church, I've always heard it that way, like give 10% and get into this habit of 10%. And if you can't give 10%, give a portion of it, but you need to get to that point of giving 10%. And so it becomes this like obligation for you to meet 10%. Um, And also... There are those who say, great, I'm at 10%. I don't need to give anymore. But the themes of what we really see in the New Testament is not um, 
this mandate of 10%, but uh, a calling to generosity and a calling to care for those around him. And you see that a lot within these uh, raising of funds and support that Paul is calling a lot of the other churches to. And he talks about their generosity of giving to other churches. And you have to think that they were also taking care of the people within their own church, right? Like they weren't just giving it to Jerusalem and then their own church was suffering. But there is this heart of generosity, this heart of caring for others, and it coming out of their what the things that they own. Of course, to say generosity only comes out of your finances is false, but to also take the perception that it, I don't have that to give. Finances are not involved at all. That's also That's also false. Yeah. yeah. Because what does Jesus say about like where your treasure is there, your heart is too. And let's be honest, like our finances, we treasure those things, right? Like how we spend our money, where we spend our money. And there might be some who absolutely cannot give in any kind of a way, but they can be generous with their time. Um, but then you have others who are like, oh, I'll be generous with my time and also keep this surplus of money that I have. And, and it doesn't even have to be a surplus. Um, but I'm just going to keep all this money and spend it according to how I want to spend it. But the call that we see in the New Testament is a call for Christians to be generous people with everything that the Lord has given them. That includes your finances. Like you should be giving of your finances uh, to care for others. Yeah. And there's another thing that we didn't mention here in terms of like New Testament data talking about giving um, and the other thing is that when it comes to pastors and preachers, Paul teaches that they're, a, a worker is wor- worth his wages. And so if there is someone who's providing ministry, then it is the obligation of the church who's receiving that ministry to financially support um, that minister. And there were certain in- instances where I think Paul did accept uh, – financial resources from other believers, particularly the Philippian church comes to mind. Um, But there was another letter that I'm not thinking of who he was writing to offhand. It might've been the Thessalonians where he said that, you know, when I was in your midst, I was preaching the gospel to you, but I, uh, I didn't receive any, any money from you. And so there were certain instances where Paul for strategic reasons, because of the culture that he was in and how that might have been perceived, he he would forego what was owed to him in in terms of financial return for offering this ministry to the church. Uh, but he's he would still say as a general rule that a a worker is worth his wages. And so that's where we get this principle that you know we abide by now where we should pay our pastors and the way that our, our pastors get paid, their source of, of income is through the donations of the people who benefit from that church and from that ministry and who are a part of that church and that ministry. Um, I don't think Paul ever had in mind the the way we do it in America with these, you know, nonprofit organizations and tax exemptions. That's, that's not something that he ever would have been able to conceive of, but the principles are there where that if there's this, uh, this ministry that is offered to you, it's obviously offered to you at no cost, but if you're a follower of Jesus and you, and, and you have benefited from this in a spiritual way and you want others to benefit it from 
from him in a spiritual way and you know that the worker is worth his wages, then your generosity ought to contribute to the continuation of of the mission of Jesus, really. Yeah, and you often have people on both sides, right? You have one who says, um, like Paul was a tent maker, he was earning his own wages, and, and that's what you were referring to when there was a time when he was serving this local church, but he wasn't taking any kind of money or donations from them. And that's the time when he was like, doing tent making on the side. Uh, so you have some who really lean hard into that and it's like, look as a pastor, like this is just ministry and you should be doing it out of the goodness of your heart, not for any kind of an income and like, go get another job, like have a job on the side. Um, which is really unfortunate because a lot of people who hold that mindset are doing often really well on their own financially. And, um, they just can't, uh, conceive the idea of giving to someone else whose calling is to minister. Like they think pastors should be living this like lowly life that they are constantly in need and in reliance on the Lord and uh, for every meal. And certainly we all are to that degree, but it, it's just like this weird power move in my mind is it's weird, like authority. And because you want to be a pastor, because you're called to the faith um, in this capacity, that means you need to go without things that I am certainly not going without, but I also won't contribute to like your well-being. Um, so I think that's just really unfortunate. And I imagine if Paul were here today, he would just be like <laughs> yelling at everyone because that's not the indication he was trying to give by give it, telling us he was a tent maker at a certain period in his ministry. Um, but then you do have the other end of it where... Like it does talk about like, don't muzzle the mocks, like don't muzzle the mocks, <laughs> don't muzzle the ox and a worker is worth their wages. So what is that balance when it comes to pastors receiving um, salaries and what does their livelihood look like? Uh, and I think oftentimes it needs to match the community they're in, right? Yeah. And depending on the community, I mean, some people who are pastors may need to be quote unquote tent makers, uh, depending on your context and the size of the, the church that you're leading and the financial resources of the people who are in that congregation, you may need to be, it's called bivocational where you, uh, work as a pastor, but then you also work in another job to supplement your income. Um, that can often be, you know, difficult and it's a, a lot of hours that you can be putting in. Um, and then there's other situations where, there's enough size in in the congregation there. There's enough resources there that you can have a full-time pastor who, like, that's what they do. And they, they their whole job is to train other leaders. And maybe there's uh, more than one full-time uh, pastor or support staff on on that team for that church. And so it really it depends on the context. I don't think that there's necessarily like a one right way to right. go about that. Um, I think there's a lot of wrong ways to go about it depending on the context that you're in where uh, there may be, you know, situations where pastors are financially ambitious when they ought not to be mm -hmm. uh, in certain mm -hmm. ways when that, especially when those finances are coming off the generosity of, of people who are really doing their level best to give as much as they can. Uh, but then there are other situations where pastors are just like literally just trying to survive. And, and there are, there are people who have 
uh, a lack of deep pockets and they are suspicious of them and want to keep them poor, to keep them humble because they think that's spiritual for some reason. And that's also super unhealthy. Yeah. And the idea of, um, I guess, like, how should a pastor be paid? Should they have to work a separate job on top of being in ministry? Uh, We even see Paul take on different versions of that, uh, different practical measures of that in his own ministry. There's a point where he is taking the money, um, taking the donations from certain churches, and that's how he's able to minister in that area. And then we see other times where he is doing tent making. Um, You know, he's bivocational because of the needs of that church. So I think for the masses, though, we we cannot view our generosity through the lens of, well, I'm not going to sit here and pay the salary of my pastor. Like the, that probably is an indicator that you don't have a very generous heart in the first place and that your view on money is, is tainted and um, kind of dysfunctional. Like you're holding on to your money as you have some kind of power over your pastor. So maybe that's something like, as an individual, you just need to deal with and take before the Lord and ask him to change your heart. But when we look at scripture, there is uh, this call within the New Testament for us to be generous people. And the way that we see giving of our finances, it goes towards like the mission of the kingdom of God. And maybe in a very practical way, that looks like your local church. Uh, maybe it looks like other organizations that are continuing to fulfill the mission of the kingdom of God. But biblically, there's not like a whole lot around saying you absolutely must give to your church. But as we understand what the local body is supposed to be, and as we understand what the the body of Christ is, is meant to be within our own lives and how we're supposed to be contributing to that, it only seems to make sense that you are giving to your local church, that you are part of your local church in a lot of different ways, that you are grafted into that community. And if you're giving of your time and you know, you're know you being a servant there, you should also be giving of your financial resources as well. Um, I do know some people that say like, I serve at church and that's enough. And I give my money to another organization. Um, all throughout the New Testament, we see giving to churches, right? Because there wasn't really this place for other organizations. Um, I think if you have a capacity to give to your church and other organizations, that's great. But holding the mindset that you won't give to the local body of Christ, I think is going against what God intended the local body to be. Yeah. And just looking at the New Testament, like whenever you see believers meeting needs that required financial commitment, most often they're doing it with the people whose whites of their eyes they can see. Like those things are being solved in their own communities, whether it's caring for the orphans and the widows, whether it's, um, you know, funding the ministry of uh, the pastors and, and leaders there. And then there are other instances where that money is going abroad or it's going somewhere far like with all these churches who are giving to the Jerusalem fund. So it's a both and, um, and the Bible isn't like super explicit about this, but I think there's enough descriptive um, endorsements of this to say that uh, it's reasonable to expect that someone who is a follower of Jesus and embedded in a church, which you should be, if you're a follower of Jesus, then a, 
at the very least, the, the lion's share of your generosity should be directed at that local church. And that maybe God has put other things on your heart as well. Um, but that necessarily shouldn't take the place of your primary form of giving. It's kind of like, you know, if I have people in my life that I want to care for and, and love and look after, um, I don't do so to the neglect of my own family at home. Right. Like, that doesn't make, like that we wouldn't do that. That doesn't make Maybe sense. Hope not. Right? Like that would be <laughs> in a part that's in addition to and included in, and might even enrich the overall experience of, of your own home and your own family. Uh, but it would just be strange to us if someone said, you know what? Like I've given my family enough love. I paid for the rent this month. Now I'm going to go take care of this other person. And I've done enough for these people here, you know, that are just, you know, I've given enough to them. <laughs> We'd be like, wow, that seems a little weird. It seems a little toxic. Mm-hmm. Right. And what generosity is supposed to be in the heart of a Christian is something that brings you joy. Um, There is a blessing that comes with giving. And it's not so much this one-to-one that we hear from prosperity gospels, right? Like if you give this much, the Lord will, you know, bring that back 10 times fold. But there is something about having a heart of giving and giving to others. And as someone who's been on the other side of very generous people. I can tell you that your generosity goes a long way in the lives of others. Um, I grew up with a single mom and a lot of the times we didn't have just like the basic needs in life. And we for sure didn't have anything that was above and beyond just the basic necessities. And just about every Christmas, there was some family, different families um, that just thought of us and would give so generously of their own pockets, of their own finances to make sure that we had um, more than just like socks and underwears as gifts for Christmas. But I just remember more gifts being under the Christmas tree after like in November, my mom would say, look, I think it's going to be one gift this year. And I'm not sure what it's going to be, but like, I just don't have a lot of money. And, you know, she's trying to like have this conversation. So we're not disappointed when we see Christmas come. And my mom was um, a prideful woman. And I, I feel like that sounds negative, but she wasn't going to go like lament to everyone she knew about the fact that she didn't have enough to give her kids anything more than like one one gift for Christmas, right? Like she wasn't going right. around telling people that. She was just going to do her best and give what she could. Yeah, she was just going to do it. And it was just, it was a conversation she had with us. So our expectations were set accurately. But those were the years that then under the Christmas tree, there were more gifts. And she was honest. She said they weren't, you know, from her, but they were from some family who just wanted to bless us. And that went a long way for us. That went a long way for our family and our relationship. And it's not just about those physical things but it's about knowing that someone someone saw us and why am i crying so weird (laughs) someone saw us and cared and that's the way god wants churches to be that's the kind of community god desires his people to be people who see other people and want to step in 
and give to them. Like that's extending the love of God in like a very tangible form, right? And so to always think about it with this 10% cap on it is losing what God wanted his people to have. As someone who's giving and being generous to see that you've made a difference in someone's life, like that's such a blessing. And then to be someone who's receiving that, it's also a blessing. Again, it's not about the physical things you're receiving. I mean, yeah, having food on your table for Christmas morning is really nice, right? Right. <laughs> like, like that's not lost. Yeah. But to know that another person was thinking of you, sees you, and wants to step in and fill that gap, like that's the beauty of Christ. And so as we're viewing our money, Let's step into that aspect of what God wants us to be. Not this obligation of, well, I'm at 9.5% or (laughs) I've already done 10% and just trying to uphold the law because that's what Jesus was yelling at the Sadducees and Pharisees about. Yeah, my my pastor, he once told me, he said, you can always tell who the tithers are. Because like on their their giving record, it'll say like they gave like five hundred and thirty four dollars and twenty four cents like that that month or whatever. He's like you can tell that they are to the penny exact on what the tithe is. And you know, as we look at the scripture, I don't see in the New Testament really a warrant for like this hard and fast like ten percent to your local church rule. Um, and so in some ways, I. I think it's okay if that teaching falls by the wayside because I don't think there's a very strong biblical case for it. But there is a very strong biblical case to say that if you're not giving, then you should be giving. And if you're giving a little bit, then you should be giving more. And if you're giving a lot, then go you. But like, can you be even more generous, uh, whether to your local church or other needs that are in your community? Um, that's something that is part of the fabric of being a Christian. That's it's one of the core values that we're people who are meant to be marked by joy and peace and generosity and charity and kindness and goodness and uh, all of this owing to uh, the hope that we've been given in Jesus. And so any way that we can fund uh, the mission of Jesus, that, that the gospel would be proclaimed that we can provide resources to that, then we should. And then wherever we can provide resources to where the gospel is being lived out through caring for people, then we should also be giving generously to that as well. And maybe 10% to like a, like that's a good benchmark for you to hit. Like maybe you, you give like 3% and say, you know what, 10% would be like a really good goal for us to like be, be giving that. And I think that's totally fine. Um, I, I just don't think that, you know, we necessarily need to burden the conscience of people or to like really just like put it in like such a um like such a such a weird framework of a very specific benchmark um when the apostle paul tells us that that god loves a cheerful giver it's not that god loves a a giver who gave the obligatory amount that God loves a cheerful giver. And now that that isn't to say that, that your giving should always feel good, right? Because there's, no, there there's, there's a lot of times when we've been given to something. I'm like, dude, I I feel compelled, yeah. not because somebody told me I had to, but because this is something we should give to. But 
I'd really like to hang on to that money. Like that's mm-hmm. a that's a pretty nice little mm-hmm. sum there. That isn't to say like unless only give if you feel like then you're you, never going to give. You're never going to give. Uh, you got to know when when and have a sense when God's calling you to do that. And then even though you don't really want to, that's part of what generosity is. It's giving even uh, when you prefer to hang on to something. Well, and that understanding of giving to even just changes your view on money. Or you view it as this resource that the Lord has given you. And how do you steward that resource well? Am I going to do it to where all of my income is just going back into my own household? Or are there other ways I can actually impact um, others outside of just the unit that I see every day, right? Um, I think it allows us to have a little bit less of a dependency on money and a dysfunctional relationship with money where we're trying to hoard all of it. But really lean into, okay, Lord, I'm going to be generous in this way and I'm going to trust that you are going to care for my needs too, but also that he would transform our hearts on the way that we view money. Thanks for listening to the Kainos Project podcast. Thank you also to our partners at Life Audio. Visit lifeaudio.com to find dozens of other face-centered podcasts in the network, including shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. If you enjoyed hanging out with us today, consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a rating and review. And be sure to visit our website, kynosproject.com, for more helpful resources. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Want to learn more about God and His will for your life one verse at a time? I'm Quinice Petway, co-host of the Your Daily Bible Verse podcast. I'm inviting you to tune in and subscribe at lifeaudio.com.